So it's Easter, so we're going to talk about the resurrection. It's a great subject, Kevin. Good job. So uh, (laughs) what other thing would you talk about on Easter Sunday? And for a lot of Christians, you know, this is a story we've heard, and you've probably heard it many times. And what's important to know is that the gospel is not reinforced in our lives by having heard. It's by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. And so some of you this morning, you're going to go, oh man, I've heard the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, but it's the most important thing you could imagine. So we're going to draw from this text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't know anything about your Bible, that's okay. Welcome to Elevate. We're going to help you. We're going to walk you through the process. No matter where you are on the spectrum, we try to put the cookies on the low shelf so that you, can, you too can access the fun. So this book of Corinthians is written by a guy named Paul. Paul was sent by the Lord, and he's writing to a church in the ancient world in the city of Corinth. The people of Corinth were everyday people. They didn't have a lot of religious experience. They didn't come from families of faith. They weren't, they weren't, you know, most of the people in the New Testament, they had Judaism in their background, which was kind of the foundation of Christianity. They didn't have any of that. They had nothing. They heard about Jesus straight off the street, like most of y'all, right? We just hear about Jesus straight off the street. So Paul is talking to a church and talking to a group of people who aren't very sort of, shall we say, religiously trained. And he says to them, what I have received, I pass on to you, and I want you to say this with me, as first importance. Christ died for our sins. Say this with me. According to the scriptures, he was buried and raised on the third day. Say this with me. According to the scriptures, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve, and then after that he appeared to 500 people. So Paul is telling this church, check it out. There are eyewitnesses of what I'm telling you, and they're alive today at the time of that writing, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and then lastly, Paul says he appeared to me. There's a lot of things in this world that you need to know. How to drive a car, how to tie your shoes, how to get up in the morning, how to, get, how to dress yourself. There's a lot of things you need to know. But there's one thing you must know. There's one thing that the Bible says this is of first importance. That's, come on. That's right. We encourage participation here at Elevate, so, you know, if you want to throw stuff at me, I might be able to dodge that, too, but anyway. It's like, shut up. No, anyway, come on. Yeah, whatever. Uh, so this is of first importance, that Christ died according to the Scripture. So everything that we know in this world, the thing that is of most importance is this. He died according to the Scripture. So this idea of Christianity, this concept of Christianity, wasn't like baked up overnight. Wasn't a bunch of guys sitting around going, hey, you know, we should form a new religion or, you know, let's just form this new concept of spirituality. And they didn't just put it together. I know, let's create this and let's do that or let's do this. The Bible says it was done according to the scriptures. Every other religion of man, apart from the gospel, has man serving God. Christianity is the only, Christianity isn't even a religion. Christianity is the only one where God serves man. It's the only one where God came down and the sacrifice was given to us on his behalf rather than our behalf. It's the only one. Jesus died according to the scriptures. It didn't come out of thin air. His death was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, which is 1,500 years before the event ever happened. 
Isaiah 53, one of the most clear prophetic chapters in the Bible about the death of Jesus Christ, was, was prophesied and spoken 700 years before it happened. Psalm 22 is in the same time frame. His resurrection was prophesied in Hosea, Jonah, Psalm, and Ge- Psalms, and Genesis. That's just a few. That's just a handful. Everything that God did, he did according to the scriptures. He tells the end from the beginning. The, the Bible is unique and separate and distinct from any other book in the world. And its number one characteristic that makes it the most distinct is its prophetic in nature. It tells the end from the beginning. God has a plan for his creation. God has a plan for man, and he has a plan for this world, and he has a plan for his kingdom, and he tells the end from the beginning. So we have these four verses here. If I was to ask you, name me the four NBA teams that are going to make it to the finals. Not only name me the four NBA teams that are going to make it to the finals, but tell me the scores of each game. The odds of you doing that are next to impossible. The odds of Jesus fulfilling even a fraction of the prophetic word that was spoken about him is next to impossible. It's infinity. Yet he did. And why does God foretell the end from the beginning? Why is he so accurate with with the prophecies? Because you can make no mistake that Jesus is who he says he is. You're going to make no mistake. He's proven himself, and he's validated. And so everything that happened from Christ's death, birth, even his birth and his resurrection was done according to the scriptures. Next slide. And this is of first importance. So here's a question. How did Jesus die? Well, he was crucified by a secular government, the Roman government, masters of crucifixion. They didn't invent it, but they certainly perfected it. Professional executioners killed him. They killed him in the most painful way that you could possibly be killed. The Romans, for the most part, were what we would call sadistic. They enjoyed watching you suffer. They would inflict pain upon their victims, upon their enemy, and they would just watch it. They weren't into a quick death. They liked to watch the life flow out of you. And so they would beat him with a cat of nine tails. They would shove thorns on his head. They would scourge him. They would throw a robe on his back, punch him, pull his beard out of his face, spit in his face. They put a bag over his head and punched him in the face and said, prophesy to us who's hit you. They grabbed his beard and they pulled the beard from his face that was a penalty for blasphemy, by the way, that their beard was, he was, he was accused of blasphemy, which means he claimed to be God. That's what they, that was his charge. That's what they ultimately killed him from. He was murdered by a group of professional executors. You ever heard the word excruciating? Anybody ever heard that word? You ever slam your finger in a car door? Oh, that's excruciating pain. The word excruciating, the, root word, the Latin root word is the word crux. It's where we get crucifixion from. So the word cru- excruciating comes from crucifixion. It's pain to that level. Jesus didn't die because of the cross. He didn't die because of the beatings. He didn't die because of the punishment that, was, that man inflicted upon him. He willed his death. He said, no man takes my life from me. I give it. Amen. How could he do that? Because he's God. Yeah. People go, well, how could God form? How could Jesus be born of a virgin? I'm like, duh. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about a God who spins a planet on his fingers like it's a basketball. He casts stars from his hand. He commands light, and it is. Your natural world is full of miracles. The fact that the earth hangs on nothing. Did you know that? Our scientific minds with our, all of our analysis, we can't figure out how the earth doesn't spin off into outer space. It makes no sense. They cannot even do I'll give you an even better one. I shared this last service. You have a fusion reaction going on right up in the sky every day. Your sun is what's called a fusion reaction. It is hydrogen and helium. 
in a kinetic form. In other words, it, it, it doesn't, it, hydrogen and helium, that reaction is impossible for man to replicate. Man cannot produce a hydrogen and helium reaction. We cannot produce a fusion reaction. It is impossible in scale. So we can't take hydrogen and helium and put them together and create anything that's stable. Well, we can do it, but it's very, very unstable. Yet we have a miracle right off of our, that rises in the east and sets in the west. That is not a natural occurrence. That is a supernatural occurrence. God said, let there be light, and there was. So who are we talking about? When we question whether God can allow himself to be born of a virgin, who are we talking about? We're talking about the God who can create something out of nothing. That's what it is. The Bible uses the word for him in nature of creator is the word bara, and it means something from nothing. Only God can make something out of nothing. You can't. I can't. Man must use existing materials. If God doesn't, if God doesn't have it, he'll make it. That's who we're talking about. So God didn't have a body for himself. He made one. Born of a virgin. On the cross, he willed his death. He gave up his spirit. What did he do? He's hanging on the cross. And the Bible says that the judgment of the Father came on him. So Jesus was beaten. So I'll give you the story. So why not? It's 1130. We got, it's a little looser now. So let's just, get, let's just get comfortable and put your feet up. All right? <laughs> Jesus came to heal and free his creation. That's you and me. Everything that Jesus did was for you. Had nothing to do with himself. God had determined that the way that man could be saved, the, man, the way that man could be come back, was that if he himself became God and took on our punishment. That was the plan. Because you can't save yourself, you see. Each, thing that Je- each place where Jesus shed blood, because it's all about blood, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, the Bible says. You cannot be forgiven unless somebody's blood is shed. They used to kill goats and sheep, and they have to do blood offerings, but that blood, the Bible says, never never canceled sin. It merely covered it. But the blood of Jesus eradicates it. Each place where Jesus shed blood is a direct relationship to the healing that he desires to impart. He shed blood in the garden. That is the emotional healing. God makes a provision through his blood for emotional healing. He had whips on his back. He took stripes on his back. Stripes on his back have nothing to do with sin, Christian. When Jesus was beaten with whips, it had nothing to do with sin. The blood of the cross is where sin was atoned for. The blood at the the post with the whips is for the healing of the flesh, the healing of the body. So even today, while a Christian can have supernatural healing and salvation, we, are, we can also be imparted with supernatural healing in the body and supernatural healing in the soul and the emotion. And come on, i got one guy over here. That's all I need. I only need one. And for the most part, most people are damaged at the level of the soul. That's where most people's problems are. Jesus has made a provision. David prophesied it. He restores my soul. It's the restoration of the soul. Each place where Christ shed his blood is meant as an offering of atonement. When he was on the cross and the blood was being shed upon the cross, the judgment of sin was placed upon him. Somebody has to bear the judgment of sin. You or him. You choose. So you know what sin looks like when it's judged. Jesus trembled in the garden and sweated blood. He wasn't afraid of the cross. I was like, oh, Jesus was so tormented at what he was about to face. That had nothing to do with it. Do not fear the one that destroys the body, but fear the one that destroys the soul. Jesus was not, in, he was not intrepid about like, the, the, the judgment or the, the penalty of man coming upon him. Where his reservation was is he knew the judgment of sin was going to come upon him. And that's why he said, is there another way? 
Is there any other way besides me bearing this? And he says, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he drank the cup. That's the cup, the cup of judgment. It's a reference. So the blood of the cross deals with sin. The judgment came upon him. Okay? That's the idea. Jesus willed his death. After it was on him, and the Bible gives us a period of time where the judgment was placed upon him, he lifted up his eyes, and it's called the shout that was heard round the world. We in America, we have a revolution that we broke away from England, and the shot was fired at Concord. It's called the shot that was heard round the world. Well, this on the cross is the shout that was heard round the world. He yelled, Tetelestai, it is finished. And he willed his death. The payment or the judgment or the sacrifice for sin has been atoned for. And he died. And you know what he did? He took the judgment of sin, gathered it to himself, and took it into the grave. And he resurrected, come on, and he resurrected a new life, a new man. And that is by his blood, not the blood of Adam. Every person in this room shared this last service. I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it's all good. Come on. Everyone in this room is born of the blood of Adam. We're all different. The Bible, so this, is, this is clear. In a multicultural city such as Miami, this needs to be understood. The Bible does not refer to race. It refers to ethnos. The Bible references all men as from a common source. And it uses the word ethnos, never race. There may be a translation in the Bible that uses the word race, but the Greek or the original language uses the word ethnos. You know what ethnos means? Different. That's all it means. So Jesus, it just means that we all come from a common source. We're all born of Adam, and we're all different from one another. We're not different races. We're of one blood. We're all of a common blood. And so we're born, come on, yes, yes. So we're born of the common blood of Adam. And we must be born again. We must be born of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why blood is at the center of Christianity. Because it represents generational transference. Your blood is a generational transference. Your blood contains your DNA. The life is in the blood. Where there's no blood, there's no life. Without the shedding of blood, there's no atonement. Jesus' blood, his life, covers the death of sin and brings forth new life. You're born again by the blood of Jesus. You're no longer of the blood of Adam, spiritually speaking. You're born of the blood of the king. You're, blood, you're born of a sinless blood. How do you know Jesus was sinless? Because the grave couldn't hold him, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. That's what we're here for. This is what Easter is. He rose. He's not in the tomb. Why do you look for the living among the dead, the angel said. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. He's alive. And so Christ rose from the grave because death only holds the sinner, you understand. And Jesus was without sin. And so the grave had no hold on him. And he came forth through the veil. You see? Just why when the Christian, when you die, death does not hold you. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You go right there. Because God has made you his righteousness. In heaven's eyes, in Christ, you are without sin. If you die without Christ, well, that's another story. Death will hold you. And you will await for something that you really don't want to encounter. But nonetheless, in Christ, there is no death. There is no hold over you. He died for our sin. This is a big conversation. I've had this conversation. I used to be in business many times, and I would always work with secular people. I didn't insulate myself with Christians. 
You understand? We're in the world, but we're not of it. And I took it upon myself to try to be a light to as many people as I work with as possible. It didn't always happen, but I didn't hide the fact that I was a Christian. Some of y'all, you, you, know, you don't need to be religious and carry a 10-pound Bible, you know what I'm saying, to let everybody know you're a believer. You're just a believer. You're living out your faith just like everybody else. It's common day. It's everyday stuff. And so I had some people I did business with, and they saw that that was the case. And, and we, they would always want, you know, curiously always want to have a conversation. I didn't even have to bring it up. They'd be like, no, I have a question for you. And I'd be like, okay. And they're like, you know what, let's buy a coffee, and I'm going to talk to you. And one of the guys told me that I worked with, he said, see, Kevin, I don't believe in sin. That's my problem. He said, you know, when you start talking about sin, that's where I have a problem. I believe what's right to you is right to you. And I believe what's wrong to you is wrong to you. Sin is wrong. There's no such thing as, self, as, 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 as sin. And I believe that right and wrong is relevant. And I would say there are no absolutes. He said, yeah, they're absolute. And I go, is there absolutely no absolutes? You'll get that on your way. You'll, you'll pick that up on the way home. But the point, the point being is that he would tell me there is no sin. The Bible has a word for you. In 1 John it says, if we say we have no sin, it, you know what it tells us? You're self-deceived. And truth is not in you. So for a person to say that they have no sin, you are self-deceived. And there is no truth in you. And that's the very essence of what sin does. Sin blinds you. That's what it does. Sin is a blinding effect. You're in darkness. That's why when you come to Christ, you come to the light. And everything changes. You see and perceive differently. You don't ascend intellectually. You transcend spiritually. Man separated himself for his creator. Christ died for our sins. He died because Adam separated. Now, this is a big point. If you want to get anything out of this, this next section that I'm about to give you is very important. Okay? So God created man. He created Adam and Eve, and he set man on a pedestal above all of the creation, including the angels themselves. Man had dominion over all. He was in relationship, son and daughter, in relationship to their father. That was how it was supposed to be. Adam didn't like his position, so he wanted to kind of go above God. And the Bible says he sinned. Well, what does this mean? We all sin, oh, sin. What the church does with sin, we do one of two things. We either, in our modern churches, we don't talk about it. Don't use the word sin, pastor. You're going to make people feel uncomfortable. I literally, there are conferences where they tell you not to use the word sin or hell. And there go, is hell even real? I'll go, hell yeah, hell's real. Any next question? <laughs> and they don't want to use the word sin. And then we've got other churches that use the word sin like a hammer. And they want to beat people with it. If you understand, this is why I emphasize this so much here, is because this context has to be understood. The word sin in the Greek is, the, the, there's two of them, but that the mean the same, that are different, but they're both used for sin. The word that where man fell is the word harmatano. And everybody say, it means to offend. So what, it, what and the word offend, so harmatano means to offend, and it means to push away. Harmatia means to miss the mark. Harmatano means to push away. So Adam was placed in a position, he offended, he pushed God away, which he didn't really push God away, he literally pushed himself away, because if you push God, you're not going to move. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So if I'm standing up here on a platform, God's put me on this platform, God's there, say, hey, I don't want anything to do with you, and I push him, I'm going down, he's going to stay right where he is. That's where we get the concept that man fell. The word harmatano in the Greek, throughout all of the, if you want to read Plato, Socrates, any of these ancient Greek writers, the word harmatano that was used then was always as a reference to a hero that has fallen. 
So when, the Bible, when, when, so when the Bible references this and uses this word harmatano, as the Greek writers would write it, it means the hero is fallen. It not only means that we are fallen, it means something even more significant than that. It means that we were created to be heroic. Think about that one. You're like, I knew it. I always knew I was like Batman, man. I knew it. <laughs> Some of you got your, under, you got your Superman shirt underneath your shirt, all the stuff. We were created to be heroic. And when we pushed God away, the hero fell. And man fell beneath his stature. Man fell beneath his designated place. Man who was supposed to be heroic, who was supposed to be the difference maker, man who was supposed to be the influencer of the kingdom and operate with the power of their father had fallen. Anybody know Sigmund Freud? I was hemming and hawing whether I was going to share this or not, but I threw it out there, so I'm going to throw it out there again. Anybody know Carl Jung? Okay, so in most circles. Pastor, don't quote Sigmund Freud. Stay away from all secular references. If you don't know Sigmund Freud is and Carl Jung, they're kind of the fathers of modern-day psychology. They study human behavior. Okay, That's what they do. Their whole thing is, why do men and women act the way they act? Freud had the understanding, Freud's conclusion, one of his conclusions was that all of man's responses, all of man's behavior is the result of negative behavior from a fallen hero complex. That's what Freud said. Carl Jung said that man's behavior is out of the root desire to become heroic. Therefore, we behave the way that we behave, either because we have a hero complex or, we have a, or we're acting out of a fallen hero complex. So what does that mean? Are Freud and Jung geniuses? What it means is that they tap into a universal truth about mankind. As they're dealing with people, they keep coming across this theme in people's lives. There's something going on here of a heroic nature. So the hero's fallen, so the identity of self has been broken. Whatever it is that they come to this conclusion, therefore all their behavior is out of this. Or they have a desire to be this, therefore all their behavior is towards this. But what they tap into is what's called a meta-story. God takes his truth and weaves it into the fabric of creation. It's called a meta-story. So what they were tapping into is that the very nature, the very way that God made us, they were understanding. Of course, they weren't Christians. They weren't understanding this from a biblical point of view or even a spiritual point of view. They were understanding it from a humanistic point of view. But nonetheless, secular psychologists came to the same conclusion. God made us. Come on, give me somebody. God made us to be heroic. You were, say this with me. I was, I am, created on purpose, with a purpose. You were created by love and for love. Yeah, you can say that. I was created by love and for love. These are things that are called intrinsic needs. These are intrinsic. Every person in this room has the same needs and desires. The outcome of that need or desire may be different, but the root of the deed is still there. You have a root to know. You have a root to be known. You have a root for significance. You have a root for belonging. Every one of us longs for the same thing. We were created by love. What does that mean? God is love. Okay? What does love mean? So we need to interpret love. We need to interpret these terms because they get lost. Love, from a biblical point of view, say this with me. Love, love. from God's economy, love. means to seek the highest good. So when it's love, it's not, oh, I feel for you. I've got this loving feeling. So we interpret God's love towards us as this emotion. God's love towards you is not based on emotion. It's based on intention. His intent to love you is to you work out the highest good for you. It's not a matter an issue of emotion. Because if it was an issue of emotion, if he watched me, he probably wouldn't be feeling all that good about me every now and then. He'd be like, 
You know, but he doesn't look at me based on emotion. He looks at me based upon intention. So love from the biblical context is to seek the highest good. That's what it means in the Christian context. So when we say we love one another, we're not like feeling euphoria for one another because love isn't the emotion that it's talking about. Love is an intention. So if I say that I love you, my attitude towards you is my will and my heart towards you is to benefit you in the highest way. That is biblical love. That is the foundation of marriage. It's where the husband looks at the wife and says, I love you. It's not a feeling, although feelings may be involved, but it is an intention. My, my heart is to benefit you in the highest way. The wife looks at the husband and says, I love you. What does it mean? Is it an emotion? How many know, ladies, and women are more in touch with their feelings than men are? My wife doesn't always feel like loving me. <laughs> she may feel like killing me, but she doesn't always feel like loving me. So she looks at me and says, I'm going to do the highest good for you. She loves me not based on emotion, but on intention. This is God's love. God's lo that's why God so loved the world that what? He gave. He didn't have an emotional experience. He looked at us and said, their highest good is salvation. Their highest good is restoration back to my family. Their highest good is restoration back to their purpose. So God so loved that he gave. God so sought our highest good that he gave Jesus, that Christ came. We're created on purpose. We're created by love, for love. We're created for family. People don't do too good on their own, do they? You know, one of the things that the church is, is the church, say it with me, the church is designed to be the restoration of the family. We are a living, breathing family. That's what we are. That's what we are, more so than even our blood relatives. The believer, the bond of believer to believer is to be considered higher than even your bond to your blood relatives. Who are my mother? Who are my brother? Who are my sisters? But those who hear the word of God and do it. The blood bond, seek to do good, but especially to the household of faith. Over and over again, it's repeated. The bond is created. This is God's family. We are brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. We perceive this as a religious experience. This has nothing to do with a religious experience. This is a relational experience. That's what it is. That's why we have a break. Like, this isn't really formal. You mean I can get a coffee and a bagel in church? This doesn't seem real formal. Where's the guy with the collar? When's he coming out? Because it's not a religious experience. It's a relational experience. And so we try to create it as God intended it to be created as a relational experience. If you're broken and you have brokenness with your mother, your father, your sisters, your brothers, the, the church is a house where there can be restoration. You can be remothered in God's family. You can be refathered in God's family. You can have brothers and sisters in a friendship, a love, and a relationship that you never had. Come on. And you're created for significance. Every single one of you believes you were born with a reason, for a reason. You know it. You're like, I don't know what my reason is, but I just feel like I was born for a purpose. Because you were intrinsically created with a desire for significance. All of you have it. It's not unique to an individual. God designed us this way. We're created with a purpose. We fell. Next slide. What happened when we fell? So we have the idea of being fallen, then we have the idea of being lost. How did we, what does it mean to be lost? We're lost. We need Jesus. We're lost. Anybody ever ask, well, what, what are we lost from? You know, well, we lost our direction. We lost our, okay, all that's true, but is there anything more to us being lost? And I would say yes. Man is lost to the uttermost without Christ. When Adam and Eve fell, and this is what plays out in our world today, Man became lost to his identity. We don't know who we are. 
We're all, that's one of the biggest struggles in life is people trying to find out who they are. This is a struggle for identity. Who am I? Who am I? Am I this? Am I that? Where do I belong? Identity. I don't know. Am I a man? Am I a girl? This is the conflict that we're having even today. We're so broken in our identity that we can't even determine our own gender. This is how, this is how outwardly this plays. And so if you don't think man is lost, look no further than the confusion over what's a man and what's a woman. That is, that is not a manifestation of cultural ascending. That is a manifestation of man fallen. Well, we're not culturally. You just have a closed mind, Pastor. I'm gender neutral. In the beginning, God made them male and female. End of story. He didn't make them gender neutral. He made them male and female. What's my point? My point is, is that is a manifestation of man's sin. That is not a manifestation of man's growing to the soul, this level where we're just socially conscious now that we can just accept all people from all things. No, it means you're broken and you're sinful and you're so broken that your identity is fractured, you don't even know who you are. And that means that they're more broken than you. Or that they're a little more out. They don't see it as brokenness, but it's brokenness. That's what it is. When man became lost, he lost his identity. Who am I? What am I? Where do I belong? We're lost to our environment. We don't know where we belong. We never feel at home anywhere. No matter where we are, we feel restless. No matter where we are, we don't feel stable. That is not a result of your upbringing. That is not a result. That is a result of sin. That's what it is. We lost to our environment. We don't know where we belong. We don't know whether to take all the resources of the planet or to, not, or to save the spotted owl and don't touch any tree. No, we're confused. Don't touch any tree. Save the rainforest. Take all the trees. Which one is it? It's neither one of them. It's stewardship. God gave it to the earth that we can take from it, but we're all supposed to be responsible and put it back. You understand? But we can't even come to common sense and understand that because we're so confused. I say we take it all. No, I say we save it all. I mean, we're, 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 that, this is the confusion, and it's a result of man's fallenness. That's what it is. We're lost to our relationships. We can't get along with each other. Wars, rumors of wars, divorce rates off the chart. We don't know how to make marriage work. We don't know how to make relationships work. We don't know how to make business partnerships work because we're too self-centered, because we're lost. God became us in order to provide a way back. Jesus said, I am, say this with me, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus Christ claims exclusivity of eternal life. Any questions? Nobody, has, nobody makes that claim. Christ says, I'm the only way. And he stands there and dares you. He doesn't blink. He tells you. Nobody comes into my Father's house. Nobody comes into my Father's kingdom but by me. Your good works aren't going to do it. L. Ron Hubbard's not going to do it. Allah's not going to do it. Mohammed, no, Mohammed none, of these, none of these people are going to do it. Krishna's not going to do it. You're nothing. It's only through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one, no one else. And in our multicultural world, we have a hard time getting our mind around this. We're like, well, that doesn't seem right. Seems like there'd be many ways to God. There's no many ways to God. There's one. One. If you're flying on an airplane and a pilot gets on and goes, hey, I think there's many ways to land this plane. And your co-captain and I, Steve here, thinks we should try to land it upside down. All in favor? There's not many ways to land a plane. There's one. Wheels down, nose up. Okay? That's how we land a plane. There's not many ways. There's one way. Jesus claims exclusivity. Here's the other truth. You are eternal. You will live forever. 
Your body is bios. When your bios dies, your pneuma will live forever. Your spirit, the part of you that makes you you. That's why we're not all robots. Oh, Every one of us have a body. Every one of us have a soul. That's a mind, a will, and emotion. So we're all equal. But what makes you you is your spirit. That's what makes you the individual. Your spirit, the individual you, will live eternally. Your bios will die and your soul with it. But your you, the person that you are, will go on. And the reality, this is, this is, again, these are the truths of the gospel. Jesus tells us this. He shows up and says, this is the light, ladies and gentlemen. Anybody want it? But it says, man prefers darkness over light. We don't like what he says. And so we think that we can discount what he says by saying we don't believe it. This, again, I would say, is the height of man's arrogance. Man thinks he's so arrogant, man thinks he's so important that he can actually define God. Man thinks he's so, man is so arrogant that he actually can tell God whether he exists or not. The problem with that is, is it doesn't work. If you get up on a building and we're all going to jump and we're going to go, okay, on the count of three, we're going to jump and we're all going to say, I don't believe in gravity. 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 Splat. Gravity exists whether you believe it or not. Gravity is a reality whether you choose to accept it or not. What Jesus says is the truth, whether you choose to believe it or not. Truth is not relative. Truth is not determined whether you believe it or not. Truth exists whether you believe it or whether you don't. It exists. Jesus' exclusivity, we're either bound to the darkness of sin or we're bound to the light. In Jesus, you know what the answer Jesus, everybody says, Jesus is the answer. Right? He's the answer to everything. Here's what he's the answer to. He's the answer to your lostness. He's the answer to your identity. You're lost. Jesus brings you back. He answers your identity. If there's anybody on the planet that should not be confused about their identity, it should be the Christian. Why? Because Jesus answers the question for you, who you are. Who am I? I'm a son before my father. I'm a son of the highest. I didn't ask for it. He gave it to me. He gave me the title. You say, what does that mean? I don't know. I'm figuring it out. It doesn't mean that I know the pathway of how to live out as a son before my father. That's not the issue. Well, you don't act like a son before your father. Well, it doesn't matter. I am a son before my father. And all of my life is to be lived through the identity of who I am. I am a son of the highest. I am an heir to the world to come. I am an inheritor of his spirit in this life and the one to come. That's who I am. You say, what does that mean? I don't know, but I'm working it out. Do you get the point? You don't have to understand it to understand who you are. This is who you are. You're a daughter of the highest. You shouldn't be confused. Well, maybe I'm a doctor. Maybe I'm a lawyer. Maybe I'm this. Maybe I'm a nobody. Maybe I'm whoever. I'm. No, you may be any of those things, but who you really are at the core of your being in Christ is a son and daughter of the highest. There should be no confusion about identity. What does it mean to be a son of the highest in my marriage? What does it mean to be a son of the highest as I raise my children? What does it mean to be a son of the highest in the workplace? What does it mean to be a son of the highest in the, in the marketplace, in, the, in, in my community, in my city, in my church? What does this mean? That's the question. We take what he gives and we ask the questions and make it work out. We work it out. Work out your salvation. Purpose. We have a purpose. The purpose of the Christian. Christian shouldn't be, your purposes are twofold in the Bible, okay? Here's your purpose. Glorify Jesus Christ in everything that you do. Bring glory and honor and to your Father in everything that you do. This is the purpose of the believer. He restores your purpose. What does that mean? Uh, my role is twofold. Bring glory and honor to Jesus in everything that I do and create common good or bring heaven to earth. What does that look like? Well, you ask the question. 
What does it look like to glorify Jesus in my marriage? What does it look like to glorify Jesus in my finances, in my future, in my faith, in my fa- What does this look like? What does it look like to create the common good? What does it look like to bring heaven to earth in my family? How can I bless my children? How can I bring the blessing and the encounter of God into their lives? How can I bring the blessing and the encounter of God into my wife? How can I bring the blessing and the encounter of God into That's our purpose. Do you understand this? This is, this is pivotal. You're not going to hear this on the street. I'm giving you reality gospel. This is the reality. This is what it means for us as Christians to be followers of Jesus. It looks like this, okay? You know, we all get these nice little messages, get a tickle, get a little pinwheel, get a cotton candy. Hey, happy Easter, off we go. Nobody's life's changed. What's the point? Seriously, what's the point? Your environment, I know where I belong. I belong, I'm part of the heir of the kingdom. My world is not this one. My world is his. I belong in the realm of the spirit. That's why I'm at home in the spirit. Some of you this morning were really completely dissociated until the worship started happening. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I feel good. I feel at home. Because you're in the atmosphere of the kingdom. This is your world. This is who you really are. This is the world in which you have been called into. I'm, not a, I'm in the world. I'm not of it. I'm not confused, nor should you be. He answers that question. He answers the question on relationships. Countless times he shows us how to make relationships work. It answers who God is. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've what? That's right. I and my Father is one, are one. That's the point. Jesus is perfect theology. He is the complete fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him is the fullness of all God is. He is represented. We don't need to know who God is. Jesus Christ is God. You don't hear me, and this is, again, if you come here to this church, and you wonder, why does Kevin say Jesus all the time? Because I want to be perfectly clear that you understand that I'm not talking about a generic God. I'm not cognizant about the God as you understand him to be. I'm talking about the God as who he declares himself to be. He is Jesus Christ, the one and only. Not one among many, he's the one and only. So it's Jesus, 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 Jesus over here, Jesus over here. I do my best to even avoid that generic term God. I use it occasionally, but I always feel, ugh, Jesus. I insert his name. It's the name above every name. Next slide. Almost done. Stick with me. Wrapping it up. Here it is. God's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. His ear is not too deaf that he cannot hear. Man is separated from God, not because of God's will, but there's an iniquity problem. And there's a sin problem. Iniquity has separated you. Sin has hidden you. God's saying, listen, I want to bring you in. I want to bring you home. I want to hear you. I want to have a relationship with you, but we got to deal with the sin problem. Man has a sin problem. You say, well, how do we deal with the sin problem, Kevin? I'm glad you asked. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to what? Save sinners. God takes care of the sin problem, if you'll let him. You know what repentance is? You've ever, anybody ever heard the word repentance? Yeah, some of you never heard the word repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. You need to repent. repent. Repentance is not laying on the front aisle, crying out in sorrow with snot coming out of your nose and tears coming down your face. That's not the definition of repentance. That's an emotional experience that may be related to, to repentance, but that in and of itself is not repentance. Come on. Repentance is exchange. It is the, Greek, it is the Hebrew word teshuva, and it means return. What does it mean? I'm a sinner. Lord, I give it to you. Lord, I have taken my life unto myself. I have, I, have, I have lived my life for me. I now give my life back to you. I repent. I return to you. My sin, my life, my future, my hopes, all to you. And then I receive back 
all that he is. I give him my sin, I take back his righteousness. I give him my life, I get his life in his spirit. You see how it works? So repentance isn't an emotional experience. You can repent and not feel any emotion at all. That'll preach. I mean, you can repent and not feel any emotion at all. Repentance is not necessarily linked to emotion. That's a fabrication that the church has made. If you have an emotional experience when you're repenting, then hey, whatever, go for it. I'm not denying you the emotional experience, but I am telling you that just because you have an emotional experience doesn't mean you repented. Repent, you can cry all you want, but never give it to Jesus. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, God, I'm so sorry, and you're still holding on to it. Oh, look at brother so-and-so. He just was really repentant before the altar this morning. Really, was he? Is that, is that really what happened? No, you, you give it to him. You give it to him. I could, that's a great message. Repentance is a great message. Four groups of people, okay? Probably four groups of people in this room right now because we have enough people to actually make a sample of this. We have people in this room, number one, they're righteous. Anybody righteous in the room? Don't be shy. You are righteous not because of Jesus Christ. You're not righteous because of your else. What a righteousness means, we take the righteousness. He knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. We receive his righteousness. He makes you, what does righteous mean? It means right before God. When you give your life to Jesus, he looks at you, God looks at you, the Father looks at you and says, you are now right to me. You now belong to me, and now I claim you as my son. You are now right to me, and now I claim you as my daughter. That's righteousness. Righteousness is what is right to God. Say this with me. I'm going to reinforce this with you. Righteousness means what is right to God. Not what is right to you. Not what is right to our government. Not what is right to a city. Not what is right to anybody else. Righteousness exclusively means what is right to God. God makes you righteous through Jesus Christ. We have a group of people probably in the room. They're poor in spirit. They're like sinners. They, they, they know they're sinners. They know they're broken. They know they can't handle it. They got everything. Everything's just a mess all the time, and they feel like there's no hope. The Bible would call you poor in spirit. And if that's you, I would say today's your day. Poor in spirit, the kingdom is yours because you know where you're at. You know where you're at. The others don't, except the righteous. The religious don't know where they're at. The religious think that all roads lead to the same place. Whatever it may be, all faiths lead to heaven. No, they don't, including humanism. No, they don't. Well, my uncle was an atheist and he's in the heaven. Uh, no, he's not. <laughs> I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But I'm going to tell you, he's not. It's not true. All roads do not lead to the same place. Broad is the road, narrow is the road. We have a broad road that leads to destruction and a narrow road that leads to life. But religious people think it's called ecumenicalism because we don't like this inconvenient truth. But it is an inconvenient truth. Religious people often say, well, my good will outweigh my bad. And so when I stand before Jesus, he's going to look at my good, he's going to look at my bad, or if I stand before God, or whoever God is, God is going to look at my good and bad, and he's going to make a determination. You know what I always ask him? How are you doing? Are we 70 good, 30 bad? Are we 60, 40? Where are we at? You, the issue is you don't know. That's the problem. First of all, that's a, that's a lie, because that isn't what's going to happen. And the second side of it is, is you don't know. You're always in this place of uncertainty. Humanism. This is American, modern, modern America. Right here, I'm going to give you humanism. You watch the news, this is what you're going to get. Humanism. You watch our culture, this is what you're going to get. Humanism. Man is the height of all things. Man is the beginning and the end of all things. We eat, we sleep, we drink, we eat, whatever it is, we live and die. That's it. It's over. Humanism. Man is self-determined, I think, therefore I am. Man is a self-determined being. Absent of God. 
Humanism has a brother and a sister, or basically two partners. One is called hedonism, and the other is called Epicurean. Hedonism is basically, in a sense, a pleasure. What it means is you live for yourself. It's all about you. So humanism is like, man is supreme, and hedonism says, I, it's all about me. I, I told Second Service, I, I read a story about Sean Penn, the actor, and he says, I'm really looking for a woman who will make me feel alive every day. Let me just let that sink in with you. Do you understand the narcissism of such a statement? I'm looking for a woman who will live for me. I'm looking for a woman who will make me feel alive every day. Because they were talking about his relationships and why he doesn't have a, he breaks up. And he's like, because I'm looking for someone who will just be so engrossed with me. Because I am so engrossed with me. I mean, how could she not be engrossed with me? Look at me. She'll make me feel alive every day. That is, that is the essence of hedonism. It's all about you. It's not all about you. Epicureanism means it's the material world. It has nothing to do with the spirit. It's all material. It's buying things and getting things and climbing the ladder. And all of that stuff may be well and good. Pleasure is given to you by God. But pleasure for selfish purposes is not the issue. Materialism for materialism's sake is not the issue. You are a self-determined being, but you're not self-determined being void of God. I'm a self-determined being made in the image and likeness of my creator. Now all of a sudden that stuff gets brought under truth and then it becomes what it is and what it's fruitful towards. People live for the world. The Bible says this, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his own soul? Or what will you give in exchange for your soul? Wow. We spend a lot of time thinking about a lot of things, but we don't spend enough time thinking about eternity. Even as Christians, that's the world you're going to live in. You know, it tells you to cast aside every weight that so easily besets you, runs the race as endurance. Come before the Father with something to present to him. Don't show up empty-handed. Don't show up and don't live a life that's been so engrossed with only your cares and only, what, Father, what do you want? What can I do to bring you fruit? What can I do to benefit you? What can I do to glorify you? People exchange all kinds of things for their soul. You can gain everything and lose it all. Next, last slide. This is it. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Being born, your grandma was a Christian, your mom was a Christian, your dad was a Christian, Uncle, Uncle Harry was a Christian. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. You must be born again. It's individual. Moving from the line of Adam into the line of Christ, who was the last Adam. He said, unless you're born again of water and spirit, you cannot enter. John 3.3 3 says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. This is, again, a truth. Okay? Christ people don't even know that there's a spiritual world. People don't even know that there's a kingdom around them. When you get born again, it's like you see something that wasn't there. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You get born again, you're like, what in the world? What? There's a whole world that I didn't even know existed. Now you're in the spirit. I shared this. It's worth repeating. My brother, before he came to Christ, I got born again. I got saved. I'm lit up. Oof, I'm rocking, man. I'm like blowtorch. I'm like burn lord jesus burn like i was just like burning all the time man ready to go and my mom's like kevin i don't want you to talk to your brother don't mention any of this to him because she looks at me and she's like oh my gosh what's become of my son right this is before she became converted and so as she's like don't talk to your brother i don't want you to talk to your brother about this i said mom if he asks me he's gonna get it that was my attitude so naturally my brother being older and wanting to provoke me um, uh, said some things to me, and I started having a conversation that went on for two hours, and I'm telling him of the mysteries of the universe that I didn't even, I mean, I'm, it's like transcendent. You're like speaking things, and you're like, what did I just say? 
Somebody get me a pen. I need to, I need, I'm going to read that when I get home. What, what was it I just said to you? You're saying, I'm saying these crazy things. The Lord was speaking to him, and he was unmoved. He couldn't believe any of it. And I kept, and I was standing there. I was like, God, why can't he see this? Why can't he see this? And the Lord said to me, the only thing that's given to him to understand is that he's lost, he needs to be saved, and that's it. That's the only thing, that, that's the only revelation that is granted to the unbeliever. So if you are here expecting God to answer the questions of the universe before you believe, you're in the wrong camp, brother. You're completely off. God will only answer, he will only reveal to you that you are sinful, you are separated, and you need to be saved. That's it. And no other revelation will be given to you until you step through that door. I'm telling you like it is. And now he will keep coming back to that again and again and again and again and again. Our culture says, well, I'll believe it when I see it. The kingdom says, no, you believe it before you see it. It's complete. It's an inverted world. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You never saw things, and then you believe, and all of a sudden, boom. It's like Peter said, or Jesus said to Nathaniel, because, you said, because I said I saw you under a tree, you say I'm Messiah, I say because of that revelation, you're going to see more things than that. If you believe, you, you got, the, the blinders have now been taken off of you. The revelation, now you have an access to the world of revelation. But people want to know, oh, you've got to tell me, you've got to figure this out, you've got to do this. And I told my brother, I said, the only thing you're given is that you're lost, you're saying, but I don't understand, I don't understand. Everybody say this with me. You do not have to understand in order to believe. God is not expecting me to understand, but he is expecting me to believe. Belief and understanding are two different concepts entirely. I am he who lives and forevermore. He says, I have the keys of hell and the grave. In other words, man is bound to hell and the grave. That's a fact. Oh, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Okay. Great. You don't believe it. Nobody believes it. Okay. People tell me, oh, Kevin, I don't believe that. I don't think that's true. I think it's this. I'm like, okay. Have a nice day. I hope it works out for you. Jesus said, <laughs> Jesus said I'm the only one with the keys of hell and the grave. I'm the only one that can set you free. That's what he's saying. We take it from the other side. I have the kill. I'll condemn you to hell. He doesn't need to condemn you to hell. You're already condemned to hell. Your sin has condemned you to hell. You are bound to the allegiance of a fallen angel. You followed darkness. We're all born into it. He doesn't need to condemn anyone. He releases you. I have the keys to set you free. I alone have the keys to set you free. This is what he's saying. You can't be saved as you are. You cannot enter heaven without being born again. It's just a simple fact. So if you're here this morning, this afternoon, and you have never received Jesus, today is your day. Well, I don't know about that. I'll tell you my brother's story, okay? My brother didn't receive Jesus no matter what I talked to him about and how much insight I gave him. But he went to church one day with my, bro with my wife. I didn't go. Just to show how God works. I didn't go, so she goes there with him. The pastor does something very similar like I'm doing. He's saying, look, if you don't know Jesus, he's going to pray to receive Christ. This church, this particular church, asks people to come forward. We're not going to ask you to come forward. We're just going to pray. We're going to pray as a group. So we're going to be part of a bigger family. And so... The pastor does this whole thing and asks if, you don't, if you've never received Christ, come, come forward. My brother was gripping the chair as hard as he could. He didn't even realize it, but he was gripping the chair. And my wife looked at him and said, Neil, why don't you just let go? There are people in this room, Jesus has been dealing with your heart for years, and you won't let go. You're just holding it. We ask prayer, I'm not praying. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. You're gripping the chair. Say, how do you know I need Jesus? You're the one where you're, there's something going on inside. You're feeling kind of tickly, tingly. You're looking for the door. There's sweat coming down your face. 
You're looking at your watch saying, when's this guy going to shut up? You're who I'm talking to. You're not even who I'm talking to. You're who the Holy Spirit is talking to. And he is doing something inside of you that makes no rational sense to your mind. It's not. The Bible says faith comes by believing with the heart and confessing with the mouth. I'll give you one last story. We'll read and we're going to pray. Dave Pavone, if he was here, I'll get him. To, he, we have him on video. It's in his testament. Long story with Dave. I've known Dave for years. All of his friends come to me and say, Dave, Dave doesn't believe in Jesus, Kevin. He hangs out with Christians, but he doesn't believe in Jesus. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with that? You know, I mean, is it all right if he hangs out with Christians and not believe in Jesus? They're like, yeah, but he's all this stuff. And so I said, okay, let me, have, let me have lunch with Dave. So I go and have lunch with him, and of course all of his friends were there, staring him down. You know? And I said, what's your problem, Dave? And he says, you know, Christianity to me, Kevin, and everybody got offended at this. They were all like, see, this is his problem. This is his problem. He said, it seems like fairies and gnomes. It seems like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. It just seems like it's a fairy tale. And of course, the religiously correct Christians got all offended. How dare you say such things? And I'm like, it's all right. It's where he's at. And I told him, I said, so what's your big hang-up, Dave? And he said, uh, I, I feel like it's true, but he goes, I can't get my mind around it. And I said, God doesn't expect you to understand. He expects you to believe. He doesn't expect you to follow your head or your understanding. He expects you to follow the witness that he puts on your heart. I said, your heart is telling you this is true, even if your mind doesn't understand it. Your heart is telling you this is true, even if you have 10,000 times 10,000 questions. Your heart is telling you this is true. And he said, you mean I can believe without having to understand? I'm like, yes, you can. And he received Jesus right there at the table. And it, yeah. And his friends are like looking at me like, wow, we've been working on him for two years. And I'm because you're working out of the different premise. You're thinking you have to convince him. You don't have to convince him of anything. You simply have to say, look, the Holy Spirit's dealing. What does your heart tell you? Well, I feel like it's true, but I don't understand. Well, go with your heart. Let go, Christian. Let go. If you're in this room and God's dealing with you and you're not a believer and you just say, I don't know if I've ever asked Jesus in my heart or, you know, whatever. Well, today's your day. And there's no greater day than Easter to do this. So we're going to bow our heads. We're going to pray. And what does it look like? Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth you'll be saved. We're going to pray together as a group. And all you got to do, I'm going to do all the heavy lifting. I'm going to lead you in the prayer. All you got to do is open the door of your heart. That's all you got to do. Jesus can't open the door of your heart. You can. And you know how to open your heart. You know. Open your heart. Open your being and receive. Just pray. Dear Jesus, come on, help me out. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior. And I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. So I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. All that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name. You say, is that it? No, that's the start of it. Amen. Come on. All right, I'm going to bless you. Um, we have a, an event out back that we want to encourage.